0: Amen. Thank you, church family, for being here. Thank you, Venture Online for joining us today. We're so grateful that we get to have these moments together, to gather, to sing, to worship Jesus together. I want you to think about a time when you felt deep satisfaction if these things have applied to you. Think about what you felt when you have prepared the most perfect meal and plated it so meticulously. Think about how it feels when you have written the last page to a book that you've been writing for years. Think about what it feels like perhaps to hit submit on that last assignment of the semester. Ah, what a relief, huh? That feeling you have when you walk out of your office on the day of your retirement, after decades of fulfilling, meaningful work, what joy fills your heart. What it feels like when you have planned and executed the most perfect birthday party for your kid. How proud you are of yourself. Yes, and you should be proud of yourself. When you sit down at a desk and read a note from a friend or a family member talking about how you have impacted their life and the difference you've made. When you've worked the ground, tilled the soil, planted a seed, and the first fruit emerges in the spring. What joy! What you feel in each of those moments is the deep satisfaction of meaningful work. Meaningful work, the joy, the thankfulness of meaningful work. And last week, we said that all of us actually work, whether you're employed or not, whether you are a stay-at-home parent or you go to a job or you work at home, wherever you are, we all work. Work is a form in which you're useful. Work is whatever, whichever form you are useful Maybe it's taking care of an elderly parent. Maybe it's with your kids. Maybe it's in the business or in the office you work. Maybe it's in your school. It's wherever you are useful. That is the God-given work that he has called you to. But what happens when work is more frustrating than fulfilling? When it's more difficult than delightful? And the feelings of deep satisfaction when we have meaningful work is far and few between. When work is simply just hard. What do you do then? Well, that's what I want to talk to you about today. In week two of our series called Church for Mondays. The whole idea behind this series is to close the loop between our Sunday worship and our Monday work. Is to allow what happens in this room and in your living room on Sundays to deeply impact everything that happens Monday through Saturday. It is to allow you to be reminded that you are the purchased, blood-bought Jesus uh, church, that you are the church of Jesus wherever you are all week long. You are the vibrant, active, flourishing church of Jesus Christ. Whether you are raising kids or running a business, you know that work is hard. It's okay to admit that work can often be difficult, but why is that? Why is work hard maybe for you work is hard because the work itself is difficult it's hard work maybe for you work is hard because this work is new to you and you are new at a job or you're new in this line of work and it's difficult maybe for you work is hard because of the people you work with life would be easier if it wasn't for people right and work is difficult because of the very people that you have to work with And those are all legitimate reasons for why work is hard. But today, through God's word, I want to look at two reasons why work is made difficult, why work is hard. And then through God's word, we're going to look at what God calls us to be and what he calls us to do in the midst of difficult work. Here's reason number one. The Bible says that work is hard because sin has unraveled the fabric of God's perfect design. Sin has unraveled the fabric of God's perfect design. The meta-narrative of the human story is creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. At creation, the world was perfect. Nothing was broken and nothing was missing. You and I were perfect at creation. And it's in that phase of the story that God gave us meaningful work. We said last week that work was not part of the curse. It was part of paradise. At creation, when everything was perfect, God gave us work. But then we fell into sin. Adam and Eve trusted in their own discernment of what's right and wrong, good and evil. They disobeyed God and fell into sin. And sin destroyed everything and messed it up. But good news, Jesus came to redeem us. He came to offer us his life. He came to bring you to God to offer you cleanse, holy, righteous, not because of any work we could have done, but because of His finished work on the cross. And we just sang that it's His blood and it's His body that was given as a price of our redemption so that we could be forgiven and free. Redemption. And today, we live in the phase between redemption and restoration. We have been restored to the Father, but yet the world has yet to experience the fullness of this redemption. The world is still broken and tainted by sin, but one day God will restore everything. Amen. He will right every wrong. The new heavens and the new earth will be here and everything will be restored, not just to what it was back then, but to better than original. Wow. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Restoration. In the fall, when sin entered the story of humanity, work was tainted. In fact, there were two things that were immediately part of the curse of sin, that were tainted by sin and broken by sin. You know what these two things are? Family and work. Because of sin, family that was marked with painful childbirth, unmet desires between husband and wife, distorted view of sex and relationship. And it says, through sin, the man was made to call to rule over the wife. It was a part of the fall. There was a struggle for power and desire, distorted relationship, and not even just between husband and wife, but in families, in siblings, in just friendships. There is the distortion of relationship and marriage and love. And the pursuit of love has become so complicated. It was tainted by sin. But second of all, sin unraveled the design for work. Because of the fall, because of sin, this meaningful work you and I were created for is now tainted, marked by hardship and difficulty and even sorrow. When God has finished going through how sin affects the family, he in Genesis 3 verse 17 talks about work. Family and work. Here's what he says about work. He said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground. Sin tainted work in the sense that not that there wouldn't be any fruit, but that fruit would be produced through painful labor and toil. By the sweat of the brow. It used to be before the fall. You didn't have to work that hard. You could plant something and immediately all kinds of delicious fruit would come forth. But now fruit only comes forth through painful days and labor for the rest of our life. But not only that, along with fruit would grow thorn and thistle. I and mean, when not you notice that it's a lot easier to grow weeds in your landscaping area than it is to grow a flower or a fruit. Yep. Yes, fruit may grow out of your labor, but certainly thorns and thistles too will grow as a result of the fall. What this means is that it takes hard work to bear fruit. What this means for us, even in our life, that sometimes there are days of deep fruitfulness and other days of fruitlessness. There are some days you go to work and you work hard and you come home at the end of the day and everything just flowed. Everything worked. I mean, the project moved ahead. Your coworkers were so kind and loving. Your kids that day were so perfect. They were such angels. Everyone got along. The world was perfect. You had incredible fruit that day. But then there are other days you equally worked hard. But you didn't take steps forward. You took steps back. Everyone was mean and unkind and mean-spirited, and you wonder if your kids are even yours anymore. You wonder, where did they get this from? It's driving me crazy. You come home at the end of the day, and what you achieved is far less than what you envisioned. Fruitlessness. Some days you work hard, and it's fruitful. Other days you get thorn and thistles. (laughs) That's what you get. Timothy Keller, in his book, Every Good Endeavor, writes about this, and he says, because of this effect of sin on our work, we vacillate, we go back and forth between idealism and cynicism. Idealism and cynicism. Maybe you have found yourself here, I know I have. And here's how Keller describes it, he says, this is why so many people inhabit the extremes of idealism and cynicism. Idealism says, through my work, I am gonna change things, make a difference accomplish something new, bring justice to the world. Maybe some of you are right there. You are idealistic. I'm going to change the world. And then there are some days where we feel so cynical. And here's what we say. Nothing really changes. (laughs) Don't get your hopes up. Do what it takes to just make a living. Don't let yourself care too much. Get out of it whatever you can. Idealism and cynicism. Because of sin... The work is hard, and sometimes the work produces fruit, other times it produces nothing. You work hard all day, all year, all decade long, there's nothing to show for it. Sin has unraveled the very fabric of God's design for family, for work. Second reason why I think work is hard is because we work as cultural exiles, We work as cultural exiles. There are two seasons in my life that I felt out of place. I had a culture shock moment. One was when my family migrated from India to America back in 1996. It was a brand new country, a whole new culture, and we were immersed in a new language, in a new community, a whole new set of norms. I'm telling you, school was hard for me. I felt so out of place, had no idea how to relate and connect. The only safe place I felt in school was ESL classes because they were just as confused as I was. So, whew, but I'm not alone. It was a cultural shock. The second place was in college especially when I worked in college. I had a few jobs until then, but I had pretty much lived a sheltered life. I was a pastor's kid, grew up in church and spent all my free time in church. And I wish that was an exaggeration, but that's not, I literally did. All my friends were Christians. And then I go off to college and I get a job and I realize, oh, there's people that don't believe God like I do. Like there's people who have no uh, no significance to God's word. The church is not significant to them. They have a whole new list of values and norms. They don't see the world like I do. It was another cultural shock. I was feeling like a cultural exile. I didn't move to a different country in college, but I just felt out of place still. And I've heard from some of you, many of you, that this is what makes work often so difficult. You feel like a cultural misfit sometimes. You have deep faith in God. You love God's word. You trust his word. But those you work with, the environment you're in, maybe even the family you're in, it feels like you are standing alone. There's a different set of norms and values and, and beliefs in the world, and you feel so isolated. Some of you have told me, at work, I have to, Do things that are legal, but they're not ethical. It's this tension of, I know this will pass the legal test, but is it the right thing to do? It's not ethical. It's not God honoring. So you're caught in this tension as a cultural exile between honoring your employer, your boss, or honoring God. Your deep-seated convictions find itself isolated, alone, as cultural exile. And in those moments, there are a few things you can do to adjust to that environment. Three things we are tempted to do. One is to avoid, second, to attack, and third, to assimilate. We can avoid culture, we can disengage, we can retreat, we can hide in our offices until the end of the day after everyone's gone home and then you leave work. Or you can attack, you can be combative, or you can assimilate. You get along, you give up your convictions, you give up your faith and you get along with culture. We know that None of those three options are actually good. So what do you do when you find yourself as a cultural exile and work is hard because it's tainted by sin and hardship and you feel alone? I'm glad you asked. (laughs) Israelites at one point, they lived like this. They had laborious, difficult work. But not only that, they were cultural exiles. In about 597 B.C., Jews were deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Jerusalem was their home. It was religion and faith were just brimming with life. And now they're taken as exiles into Babylon. Babylon was the most powerful nation at that time. It was the most anti-God culture of that time. And now they find themselves in isolation, in exile, and they don't know how long this is going to be. They're made to do tremendously difficult work, seeing little to no fruit. And in the midst of this exile, many prophets are writing from Jerusalem, writing to these exiles in Babylon saying, just hang in there, it's just gonna be a short while and you'll be out soon. Assimilate, attack, avoid, do whatever you need to for just this little while, God will get you out soon. But that was actually not true. So Jeremiah writes a letter to these exiles after hearing from God and he writes to them how they are to live and thrive and work. In the midst of a world that's hard, in the midst of a world where they are exiles. Here's what Jeremiah writes to them in Jeremiah 29. And I want you to listen to these words of this letter and hear what God may be saying to you. And work is hard and you feel like a cultural exile. Jeremiah says, this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel says to all the exiles, I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Find wives for yourselves and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf for when it thrives, you will thrive. But this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel says. Don't let your prophets who are among you and your diviners deceive you. And don't listen to the dreams you elicit from them. For they are prophesying falsely to you in my name, but I have not sent them. This is the Lord's declaration. Verse 10, for this is what the Lord says, when 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. Here's a verse you may know, for I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration, plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. You will call to me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Thanks be to God for his word. I imagine if they're reading this letter, it would have taken some time for them to sink into the fact they're here for 70 years. It's a whole generation who are going to live and die in exile. There's no quick answer to this problem. But then after they've settled on this, they would have looked through Jeremiah's words and said, how is God instructing us to live and work here in Babylon? What does he want us to do? Well, there's four things that Jeremiah here gives us about how we live, work, and exile. How we live and work and build families and do work that is hard even when we feel like we're cultural exile. The first one has to do with identity. The first one is about identity. Here, Jeremiah, God says to Jeremiah, you are a sent people. Our identity is that we are a sent people. Notice verse 4 of Jeremiah 29. This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles that I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Who did the deporting? God did. See here, the Jews are thinking, well, King Nebuchadnezzar. The Babylonians deported us, it's their fault. This was their doing. But As God writes to them in the midst of their exile, God first corrects their thinking. It's not Nebuchadnezzar who sent them there. It's God who sent them there. This was no coincidence, this was no accident. God was fully behind deporting his own people from Jerusalem to Babylon. They've been sent by God, they've been deported by God. Jerusalem is where everyone believes like you do, worships like you do, sees the world like you do. It's comfortable, it's thriving, it's the center of religion and faith. But Babylon is when you have to stand alone for your faith. Babylon is when your faith is tested, your convictions are tried, and it's a struggle. You feel pressure, you feel cultural pressure, moral pressure, you feel it all around you. For some of you, that describes your workplace. For others, that describes your family. It describes people you love, and you are the only one who believes in God, who stands on his word. It feels like you are in exile. But in the midst of all of this, God is saying to his people, it's me who has sent you there. You didn't merely go, you were sent by me. You were sent with purpose. You were sent by my authority. You've been sent, deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. And here's why this matters so much, especially in the American workplace. Did you know that the American workplace is the third largest unreached people group in the world? The third largest unreached people group in the world is your workplace, <laughs> workplace. 40% of Americans say they would never step into a church or synagogue, no matter what reason, they would never go. But you know where they go? They go to work. They go to meetings with you. They go to PTA meetings in your neighborhood. They go to your kids' classrooms. So you have access to people that I don't have access to because you have been sent, you've been scattered and mobilized and it's God who has sent us there. Author R. Paul Stevens in the book, The Other Six Days, he writes it like this. He says, the church is not the sending agency. The church is the sent agency. It's not that the elders and the pastors, we gather a few people and we send them. No, no, no. We all are equally sent by God. We are equally called to Christ and sent on mission. We are deported into the world we live in to go and bring Christ, his value, his good news, his kingdom to wherever you are. You, my friend, are a sent people from the Lord. That's what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. This is our plea with the world. Be reconciled to God. It's a story of an accountant who grew incredibly disinterested and bored at his job to the point that his supervisor noticed it, but he was such a good accountant and he didn't want to get rid of him. So he thought about how can I get this person to love work again, to be engaged again? So he came up with a plan. I wouldn't recommend this, but this is what he did. He went to the employee and said, hey, the FBI has called me. Yeah, think about a far stretch plan. The FBI has called me and they have said that they suspect really bad activity, suspicious activity with the clients that we deal with. And they need an on-the-job informant. They need a spy. They need somebody here at work who's putting the clues together, who is listening, who is investigating, who is watching everything to put a report together. Let me tell you, this accountant, this once bored and disengaged accountant had a whole new glow about him. He showed up to work early. He stayed late. He was excellent in everything he did. He was deeply engaged in his work. He dotted every T and crossed every, uh, dotted every I and crossed every T. Why? Because he saw extraordinary purpose behind ordinary work. He saw something bigger. He saw something more grand. He saw extraordinary work behind what was once ordinary And this is what Paul is saying, at your work, whatever your title is, whatever your profession, whatever your stage of life, whether employed, retired, between jobs, wherever you are, this is your great, extraordinary purpose. You are an ambassador sent by Jesus with the message of Christ to change the world. You are his agent with a mission, with a deep calling that's been sent by God. Neil Hudson in his book, Imagine Church, said this, if 98% of Christians who are not employed by a church, 98% of Christians who are not paid, employed by a church, if those people took God's mission seriously in their working hours, their impact would eclipse that of the first century church. 98% of Christians who were not employed by a church, if they saw God's mission at their work, if they saw God's mission Monday through Saturday, the world would change to the point that it would even be greater than that of the early church. Friends, our conversion to Jesus does not take us out of the world. No, it sends us to the world. It sends us back with new conviction, with new power from on high, with a new burning message in our heart. Be reconciled to God. And we bear witness to the work of Jesus. Sometimes that's verbal, and sometimes that's just through our everyday actions and attitude. We bear witness to the transforming power of Jesus. What is our identity? We are sent people in exile. Second of all, God speaks to their posture. Their identity is that they are sent. Their posture is to settle in. To settle in. Now if you're a believer in Jesus, I like you am so excited for the return of jesus it 's coming. He is returning. I cannot wait. Amen. But if our anticipation of christ 's return makes us disinterested in the world and disengaged in our work, then we 've missed the purpose. If longing for Jesus is coming gets us disinterested in the rest of the world and disengaged in our work. We've missed it. The return of Jesus, our longing for his return only creates urgency in our mission, not apathy to it. It builds fervency, it builds urgency, and every day it doesn't disengage from the world, it reengages, it moves us to our world. Notice how Jeremiah says in verse 5, Build houses and live in them. It's to the exiles he's speaking. These exiles who can't wait to get out of Babylon. God is saying, actually, I want you to build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Find wives for yourselves and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Don't decrease. Multiply. Grow there. Plant roots there. It seems here that God is less interested about Jews getting out of Babylon as he is in Jews spreading in Babylon. If he took his own people out of Babylon immediately, all of the light in Babylon would go out. But if he got his people to settle in, to build homes, to plan their lives in the darkness, then there's hope for people who are looking for God, who are wondering about life, He says, I don't want you to decrease. I don't want you to disengage and move away. No, no, I want you to spread. I want you to multiply. I want you to penetrate this city. Friends, God calls you and I to hard and even hostile places. He calls you to hospitals that are hard, to schools that are difficult, to families and neighborhoods that are hard because he calls you to spread, to multiply his value, his kingdom, wherever you are. Our posture in a dark and broken world is not to leave the darkness or to abandon the brokenness. Our posture in a dark and broken world is not to leave darkness or abandon brokenness. No, our posture is to penetrate darkness with the light of Jesus and to engage brokenness with the love of Jesus. That's your posture, my posture, is to settle in. It's to penetrate darkness with the light of Christ and to engage brokenness with the love of Jesus. This is what you and I are called to, so we plant families. Maybe it's not in the best part of town, but we see where gospel work and power is needed. You take jobs, not because it pays so much, but because who it may reach. We make sacrifices and we plant our lives to penetrate darkness with the light of Jesus, to engage brokenness with the love of Jesus. Ephesians 2.10, Paul says, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, for good works that he has prepared in advance for us to do. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works, saved by grace and sent to be doers of good work in the world. But you know what the catch is? Good work doesn't feel so good sometimes. Good work feels hard and lonely. Good work is exhausting. But yet it's worth it. It's a calling. And sometimes your good work that God has prepared for you and called you to is met with hostility. But remember that Jesus, who did the greatest work, he was crucified, and yet he persisted for the joy set before him. He endured the cross with all of his hostility and shame. He endured. There are moments when our good work that we've been called to feels hard and lonely and isolating. But it is the good work God has prepared for you. It's worth it. Who we are, we're sent. Our objective, uh, I'm sorry, our posture, we settle in. Third of all, God says to them, here's your objective. And that is to pursue the blessing of where you are right now. Pursue the blessing of where you are right now. Notice verse seven. Pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on his behalf. For when it thrives, you will thrive. Imagine how contradictory this command is to what the Jews are feeling inside. This is enemy's territory. They're trying to leave. These are the terrorists who have deported them to Babylon. They want God to overthrow the Babylonians. They're praying to that end. But instead, God tells them, don't pray against Babylon. Pray for Babylon. Don't seek to overthrow them. Seek to bless them. That is radical. That's a hard command to follow. And God says, it's only when they thrive that you thrive. Your flourishing is connected to the flourishing of those you disagree with, of the blessing of those you're around. The word well-being here is Hebrew word shalom. It speaks of flourishing, prosperity, peace. And this is what God's design for the world through you is, that people around you would experience the shalom of God, the blessing of God through your work. Wherever he has sent you, wherever he has planted you, that you seek to be an amazing employee or an employer or a student or a parent, so that through your life, through your work, people around you flourish. Your company flourishes. Your city flourishes. You serve with such excellence. You serve with such humility, boldness, and passion that because of you, because of Jesus working through you, brokenness decreases and wholeness and peace increases. There's a difference around your coworkers, your classmates, wherever you are, because you are looking for who you can serve and bless. You're finding people and asking the question, what would it take for them to thrive? How can I be used by God to do so? We are seeking the blessing of those around us. I'm so grateful for people in our church who have civic leadership here locally and around the region because we together need to be fighting, standing up and championing for the common good of the flourishing of humanity, of culture, of our society, of our neighbor, of our nation. But you don't have to hold an office to do that. You can be a part of the common good of others right around you finding needs to meet and strength to give and encouragement to give, you and I have a responsibility for the flourishing of brothers and sisters and neighbors and strangers and coworkers wherever we are. God says to them, be a blessing. Seek the well-being, pursue it, for in their thriving, you will thrive. I think it's fascinating that God purposefully, specifically calls them to pray for the Babylonians, pray for their own enemies who are oppressing them. I know we complain about work a lot and even about coworkers, but this is an encouragement to pray for them. How often do you pray for the people you work with? For your boss you can't stand, a neighbor that drives you crazy, to actually pray for their blessing, for their flourishing? When we pray, our love deepens for them. Hard to hate somebody you've been praying for. Hard to gossip about people you've been praying for. God may or may not change them, but something in you will change. Your outlook, your perspective, your heart, your posture will change as you pray, as you go to God, your love deepens, and you truly seek the blessing of those around them. The last thing that God gives to this people in exile is comfort. Identity is at your scent. posture settlement, objective bless. Here's a comfort that God is working out His plan in His own timing. He is working out his plan in His timing. It is into this context of exile, hard work, manual labor, an exile that would take 70 years that God speaks the promise that we have on our coffee mugs all the time. Jeremiah 29:11. Notice verse 10 and 11. Here's God's comfort for those who find work to be difficult. And feel like cultural exiles. And you know that it may not get better for a long time. Here's God's comfort in verse 10. For this is what the Lord says. When 70 years from Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. Verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you. I know you don't see it. I know you've been waiting. But I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for your well-being. Not for disaster. To give you a future and a hope. He's saying to a people who can't see him at work, trust me, I got a plan. I have a timing. I've got the number of years allotted for you to live in this scenario, to live and work hard and feel like an exile. One day you will come home and you won't be a cultural exile anymore. But it's going to take 70 years. And those 70 years are going to be hard. You'll have fruitfulness and fruitlessness. You have thorn and thistles in the midst of meaningful work. But trust me, I've got a plan. Don't give up. I've got a future for you. I've got a hope for you. It might take 70 years, but you never know what trusting in God, what relying on His Spirit, but trusting in His Word will do to the environments that God has placed you in. Trust Him. In the midst Of the difficulty of parenting, in the strains of teaching, in the throes of leading, in the disappointments of caring, in the hardship of ministry, you are invited to trust that God is with you. He is for you. He has a plan for you. Whether you see fruit or not, trust that he's got a future. He's got a hope for you. And God invites them to call out to him. He's saying to them, you're not alone. I'm with you. You will call to me, verse 12, and I will come to you. You will come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. As you are deployed today, this afternoon, tomorrow morning, wherever you go to work, at home or at a job, God is saying, search for me anywhere and you'll find me everywhere. Search for me in the hard moments, search for me in the disappointing moments, search for me in the mundane moments. Search for me in the middle of that meeting. Search for me in the middle of that relational conflict. Search for me when you meet your neighbor. You'll find me. Call out to me. Don't do it alone. He becomes the ear that listens because he's near and close to you. Think about the words of Hebrews, I'm sorry, Habakkuk 3:17 that Habakkuk writes to the same group in exile. Though the fig tree does not bud, hmm. though the vines do not produce grapes, though the olive crops fail to give food, though there's no sheep in the pen, nor cattle in the stall, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior, I will find strength in my sovereign God. In the midst of exile, in the midst of hardship, fruitfulness or barrenness, we worship him throughout work. We rejoice, we gather, we sing, we trust, we lean on him and we call out to him for the move of his spirit all week long. Yes, work is hard, but you are sent. You are sent to bless, you are sent to settle in, you are sent to be available, to be prayerful. You are sent to seek how God may be using you this week, wherever you are, whoever you're with, and lean in with confident trust that He's got a plan. He's working it out. Let's pray. Father, these are hard words to hear and to live by, but we trust You even when we are cultural exiles. We don't know what's next or how long it'll take to see a difference in our family, in our workplace. When work is hard, we trust you. So God, we are asking that you do your work through our work, that you allow light to shine and love to engage people who are far and near from you. We pray God that you would allow us to see people with your perspective, your lens, that we would see people in need of your message, your grace, either verbally or as a witness of our life. There's something different. There's something different about who we are and what we say and how we live. That for our standard will be the standard of love, boldness, conviction, in the midst of the culture we live in, in the midst of our workplaces, wherever we find ourselves useful. God, we call out to you. Use us to bless our community and our world. Continue to use us, God, to set people penetrating darkness with the light of Jesus and engaging brokenness with the love of Jesus. We pray this to be what happens all week long through our church, through us. In Jesus' name we pray. And the church said, amen, amen. Can we give Jesus a thanks for his word today? Amen. I wanna thank you so much for being with us in person and online. And if you're today here and you are feeling the weight of the fall, You're feeling the disruption that sin has brought to you. Today, we invite you to experience redemption in Jesus. We invite you to take your next step of beginning a faith journey of trusting in Christ, giving your life to Him and let him redeem and begin to restore you right where you are. Today, you can do that in the room. You can do it across this hallway in our prayer room. We invite you there. If you need to take a next step of faith or if you've got something heavier in your heart, we invite you to our prayer room where we have a chance to pray with you online. Matt Smith will share with you how you can take your next step online. We want to be a church that's growing in the grace of Jesus Christ. And this Wednesday night, as Caleb mentioned, we've got this prayer and worship, really a worship night. And we invite you, if you love to sing, even on a midweek night, join us as we sing about God and we worship him, offering our lives to him. So I hope to see our chapel filled with the singing church of Jesus gathered just to worship and love him. We love you. We thank you. God bless you. Have a great rest of the week.